You and me got sense. Them Okies got no sense and no feeling. They ain't human. Human beings wouldn't live the way that they do. Human beings couldn't stand to be so miserable. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath. Everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. As always, I'm Will Milam. A few housekeeping matters before we get into today's episode. First, uh, it came to my attention when I was listening to last week's episode about No Man's Land, about the panhandle, that about 17 minutes into the episode, there is a strange bit of silence. Uh, that came in during the mastering of that episode. I'm working on fixing that, so it'll hopefully come up in your feed soon, corrected. But until then, I, I am aware of it, and thank you, everybody, who pointed that out to me. That's been very helpful. And just on that note, keep uh, giving me feedback. Keep sending me emails. Again, this this show is really about you, the listener. I want to create the most interactive, the most entertaining, the most informative experience that I can come up with. And I really do appreciate your help in uh, providing you this this experience. And with that, let's uh, get into today's episode. So the John Steinbeck quote in the cold open should be a pretty good indicator that today we're talking about the word Okies, specifically its history and its importance for Oklahoma culture, especially back in the 30s when it was first being used widely, and what it means for us today. The Webster's Third International Dictionary defines Oki as, quote, a migrant agricultural worker, especially such a worker from Oklahoma, unquote. Oki didn't start with that definition. The earliest evidence that we have for Oki's usage comes from around 1905, and Oki just meant short for a person from Oklahoma, and it was commiserate with names that we gave for the similar states around Oklahoma. So Oki meant for Oklahoma, Arky meant a person from Arkansas, and Tex meant a person from Texas. It wasn't inherently pejorative or derogatory. This all, of course, changed with the advent of the Dust Bowl. Though this isn't an episode on the Dust Bowl, the Dust Bowl is important and necessary to understand the background and the context of the derogatory nature of the word Oki. For today's episode, what you need to know is that the Dust Bowl was a series of severe dust storms in the 1930s that affected northwestern Oklahoma, so the Panhandle, or no man's land, if you remember from last week, western Kansas, uh, that part of Texas that touches Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, and Colorado, that, that severe uh, southeast corner. Sorry, I gaffed. Obviously, a lot of Texas touches Oklahoma. It literally is you know, almost half the border with Oklahoma. So the severe northwest corner of Texas. All right, back on track. 
But we know now that the Panhandle, northwestern Oklahoma, was hit hard by the Dust Bowl. But believe it or not, if we define largely the Okies being the migrant workers from Oklahoma that moved to California in search of work, most of these people were not actually from the Panhandle. If you remember from last week's episode, by about 1890, a lot of those people from the Panhandle had moved to central Oklahoma because of the land run. So by this time, a lot of the individuals that were moving to California from Oklahoma were actually from that central part of the state that wasn't nearly hit as hard by the Dust Bowl. The second great misconception of the Okies comes courtesy of John Steinbeck. Uh, The most famous depiction that we'll get to uh, here shortly was, of course, the Grapes of Wrath. But the Grapes of Wrath depicts the Okies as largely being the victims of greedy bankers, which were there some evictions by bankers and foreclosures? Probably, who's to say? But this actually wasn't the large part of Okies. If you know anything about Oklahoma history at this time, this was the American progressive era. And Oklahoma did have a very progressive government. And Oklahoma actually had a fairly progressive constitution at the time and had very debtor-friendly foreclosure laws, so banks couldn't easily foreclose on small farmers. So what these Okies generally were were sharecroppers, people who didn't own their own land and who were uh, farming other people's land who were getting evicted by the landowners of those farms. So between 1931 and 1933, it has been estimated that 10% of Oklahomans had lost their land because of these evictions. And remember, we're now full scale in the Great Depression, They're full scale in the Dust Bowl, and what they intend to do is go where the work is, and this is where you see the Great Migration to California. In California, there was a hope that there would be work, that there would be a better way to make a living. I have seen estimations that up to 15% of the state of Oklahoma left for California in these years. And here's where Oki in its modern sense comes into being. I've had a really hard time dating this story, but it seems to be agreed on that this happened in the mid-1930s. So there was a guy named Ben Reddick, who was a photographer for the Paso Robles Press in California, and he was strolling around some migrant camps that were filled with old cars all with Oklahoma license plate that's in these license plates said OK, just the capital letters OK for the Oklahoma abbreviation. And after taking some photos of these camps and developing the images, he wrote the word Okies on the back of the images before sending them into publication. And this was the first time that in California, the term Okies was used to describe the migrant workers from Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, in that Kansas area. For the state legislature of of California, this was a problem, and they responded in 1937 by passing a law that made it a misdemeanor to, quote, bring or assist in bringing, unquote, any indigent person into California. This was commonly known as the anti-Oki law, making it 
illegal for a Californian to bring an indigent person, which in this case would be a migrant worker, into the state of California. This law was the basis for the Edwards v. California lawsuit, which obviously was a lawsuit about this law, and it made its way all to the, all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. I remember reading about this decision as a notes case in my constitutional law textbook in my Con Law 2 class when we were learning about the Privileges and Immunities Clause. What's important to know for this episode is that the Supreme Court struck down this law as being unconstitutional. Now, the majority opinion struck it down because it violated the Commerce Clause. If you know anything about American legal history at this point, this shouldn't be surprising. And if you don't know anything about American legal history, the 1930s, well, the latter part of the FDR administration, was the period where it seemed like the United States Supreme Court would let the government do anything so long as they claim powers under the Commerce Clause. So in this case, uh, the federal government had powers under the Commerce Clause to regulate human beings entering other states as a matter of commerce. Justice Douglas wrote a concurrence arguing that actually this still was unconstitutional, not under the Commerce Clause, but under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, basically meaning that California could not discriminate on the basis of state citizenship. And one of those uh, privileges and immunities that is a national right amongst all American citizens is to travel intrastate. Now, that has previous, that has since been declared a right by the United States Supreme Court, but at the time was only a concurring opinion. But because of Edwards v. California, the Yokies could come and the Yokies could stay, and a lot of them stayed there. There there was this idea that a lot of these families were going to move from Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Arkansas to California and make enough money and then come back, but a lot didn't, and a lot of them remained in California specifically, and I think that this is a great example, is the migrant mother, which is a very famous uh, Depression-era photograph in 1936 of a mother who has about a thousand yard stare looking out at what in my mind would be a barren landscape holding two children who are clinging to her and whose faces are not towards the camera because they look to be in such grief and the mother just looks absolutely heartbroken and looks like she has no idea what's going to happen next and looks like she has no idea where to go now, I remember reading about about 50 years later, uh, some news crews and some newspapers went to interview her, and her name was Florence Owens Thompson, and she, being from Oklahoma, was a Cherokee Indian, and actually ended up settling in California and remained there just like a lot of the Okies. That's who the Okies were. Now let's turn to their cultural legacy. Why... Why are the Okies important for us today? The most obvious cultural legacy that we have from this time period is, if you've been listening to this episode, you'll know I've referenced it a couple times, is John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath is a novel centered around the trials and tribulations of an Okie family that moves from Oklahoma to California in the 1930s. But... Some of the greatest legacies that we have from this period and from these people 
weren't fictional. They were very real people. In my opinion, the most famous and the most influential Oki was the singer Woody Guthrie, whose famous album, The Dust Bowl Ballads, harkens back, obviously, to the Dust Bowl that was going on in Oklahoma and Texas at the time. The second, similarly, was not an Oki himself, but his parents were Okies, and I'm talking about Merrill Haggard, who famously wrote the song Oki from Muskogee, a single that came out in 1969. What's interesting about these two is that Woody Guthrie is famous for his far-left politics. Woody Guthrie was a fellow traveler, claimed to have joined the Communist Party, even though he never actually did, where Merrill Haggard, despite his own personal opinions, uh, when he wrote Oki from Muskogee, the lyrics reflected a really counter-revolutionary nature. So it's very interesting that these songs that harken back to the Okies uh, come from two very different political angles. And the last bit of Oki legacy I'll leave you with was himself not an Oki in that he did not move from Oklahoma to California because of the Depression or the Dust Bowl, but he did move from Oklahoma and eventually wind up in California. And I'm talking about Will Rogers. There's a quote often attributed to Uncle Will that perhaps is not actually a quote from Uncle Will, but again, it's often attributed to him that says, when the Okies left Oklahoma and moved to California, they raised the average intelligence level in both states. This reflects the kind of pithy and witty remarks that Will Rogers was known for making, but it also created something called the Will Rogers phenomenon. This is something that's very hard to explain over a podcast. It would make a lot more sense if I had a whiteboard to draw it on or if someone who knew anything about math had a whiteboard to draw it on rather than me. But trying to explain it easily, let's say we have set one and set two, or since we're using numbers, let's not use set one and set two. Let's say set A and set B. And set A has one, two, three, four. And set B has five, six, seven, eight. If we were to remove that number five from set B and put it into set A, so now set A is one, two, three, four, five, and set B is six, seven, eight, the mean, the average of both of those sets has been raised. Ain't that just a kick in the head? That is so cool. That is the only math knowledge that I have. And we owe it to the Okies. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast about the Okies. Uh, tune in next week and we're going to be talking about the origins of American football in Oklahoma, specifically the origins of the Oklahoma University of Oklahoma football program, Oklahoma State's football program, as that's obviously a major part of American culture. Uh, again, please feel free to reach out to me with any questions, comments, concerns, or you know, if you just feel like you want to have an email exchange with me at uh, Chautauqua Review at Gmail, that's Chautauqua Review at Gmail. The spelling is in the show notes. Um, big shout out to, again, my dear friend, Joseph Dorlicotti for helping me out with the, with the research on, on this subject. 
Um, and I want to give a special shout out to a really good friend of the show, Rusty Williams, who is the author of the Oklahoma, or excuse me, of the Red River Bridge War, which is the definitive history of that event, which I still think is one of the most interesting uh, stories of 20th century Oklahoma. And that is available through Texas A&M Press. And I think you can get it on Amazon. I have a link listed in the show notes. So please, if you have any interest in that, buy that book, give it a read, let me know what you think. And with that, uh, I'm Will Milam and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.